Welcome to Dental Brain Crops. I'm your host, Chelsea Myers, and today I'm joined with Darren Akapon, partner at DEO. Welcome to the show, Darren. Thank you, Chelsea, for having me on. Really appreciate it. Thanks, yeah. thanks again for letting me be here today. I'm excited to have you. So, Darren, um, as in your intro, you partner at DEO, but I'd love to just hear just on the back end, um, kind of what got you into the DEO? How did this all come about for you professionally? Well, I'll give you the Cliffs Notes version of how I got into dental. It's quite okay. fascinating. So before Peloton was on TV, do you remember the Bowflex exercise equipment? Yes. And they made it look so easy. I was just like, if I can only figure out where to put this machine. <laughs> exactly. Well, it normally ends up in the garage, right? Because of the clothing rack. But I was right. one of the yes, I was one of the management team that Bowflex brought in when they had plateaued at about fifty million in top line revenue. And then over a nine year run, I helped scale it up to four hundred million, then I exited. Wow. And then okay. I got recruited by a, a buddy into dental. And I tell of people, course. if you get recruited into dental, specifically on the group practice slash DSO side of things, it's like the Hotel California. Once you're in, you're never going to get out. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. For good reason. Exactly. And so Jake, uh, our CEO, actually bought the organization from the founder, Dr. Mark Cooper, who was a periodontist by trade back in 2017. I think at that time, Mark had been running the group on his own for about 25 years. And then Jake came on board. He bought Mark out. And then I came on as partner number two. And so it's been a whirlwind over the past five years. But now we've got six partners, including Emmett Scott and Ken Kaufman from Community Dental Partners, and also Dr. Eric Roman and, and Josie Sewell from Joyful People are now part of the group. So it, it's been just wonderful getting to get reacquainted with all of these old, old names and old faces. I've actually known all of the other partners longer than I've known Jake. In my, in my <laughs> career. So. Okay, so you were recruited, and then maybe you were doing some recruiting, and now you've got this amazing group of people. Well, I tell people there's no shortcut um, to building your network. You have to be very intentional. You and I talked about this the other week. Like what I did is I went to about twelve to fourteen shows a year for four years straight, and it was a lot. I, I you know, would say that you probably don't need to go as to as many this time around because they've consolidated down into like maybe three or four major conferences that we all go to. It's our version of a country club. Um, but you, you just got to be there out of sight, out of mind. There's no shortcutting the, the breaking bread in person and the building relationships. That's kind of what I've been known for over the last couple of years in the DEO specifically. Yeah. And I heard you talking on another podcast about the importance of finding a group of people. You put it really eloquently. You were like, you know, you're not going to live long enough in your career to make all of the mistakes or learn all of the things. Talk to me a little bit more about that and um, what the value is that you're seeing DEO bring to um, other professionals. Great, great question, Chelsea. So the, the statement is, you know, you and I won't be alive long enough to make the collective mistakes of a much larger group. So our group in the DEO, there's about 300 owners. The 300 owners own 1,700 locations and they do about 2.8 billion a year in revenues. Um, there's no one smart, smarter than that group. And so what I tell people is whether it's our group or another organization that might be more in alignment with what you're looking for, you have to find your tribe because success leaves clues. There's no honor in being on your own island making decisions in a vacuum. I always myself, and maybe you find yourself doing this, I always try to find the rooms where I'm the dumbest one in the room because I know there's only upside for me. If I'm the one giving all the answers to everyone else in the room, I'm probably in the wrong room. That's a really good point. Yeah, I like that a lot. So, okay. So let's say, and I know 
I'm a little bit more familiar with DEO than maybe some people are. So if you were just describing to me what DEO is and what it offers, what, what is it? Great question. The analogy I always use, because it's easy for people to understand, is we're kind of like Harvard Business School for dentists and dental executives. Okay. So we're pretty selective. That's why there's only 300 members. We probably say no more than we say yes. Um, that being said, we do run one large event open to the public actually coming up in Scottsdale next month, June 9th through the 11th. But we're pretty selective of curating the right group. I've been part of groups, and you probably have as well, where they're not really intentionally curated. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's a little bit of a miss as far as the, the value you're looking to get from some of these conversations. Everything that we do in the DEO is highly structured, just like dental school, where you're learning procedures beginning, middle, and end. We actually have a proven system that we've been utilizing over the last five years called DEO Map, which is a, a proven system where we've basically used big data from all of the members that we've worked with over the years to say, okay, what are the common denominators and what do you really have to get right? And what is the sequence of this process that all of these dental practice owners, quite frankly, they're not taught this in dental school. They're not even taught this when they go to CE courses on the business side of dentistry after dental school. What are these systems that are tried and true that they need to perfect? Whether they learn it from us or someone else, we usually openly share that information We just go a lot deeper when you're part of the 300, if that makes sense. Yeah. So could this theoretically be for a solo practitioner or do you have to have multiple practices to be a good candidate? Great question. We typically start off at one location that's a flagship location that's doing at least 1.5 million in production. Okay. Not collections, but production. Because Mm -hmm. by that time, they've sometimes outgrown the boots on the ground consultants that they've been using in the past and or the organizations that they're part of typically cater to those that are doing about 800 to a million. And so now that they're over that hump, they're now hitting these next roadblocks and obstacles. And some of the information they're getting is rinse and repeat. And it's just not working. And so they typically reach out to us or they interview and apply to be part of our group. And I have a one-to-one interview with them to see if it's the right fit culturally, as well as, you know, I'm not a magician. If someone says, hey, get me from 1.5 million to 5 million in a year so I can retire, I, I'm, I can't do that. You can't do that. That's just not enough runway. But the reality is I'll try to point them in the right direction, even if they're not a fit for us. Okay. Okay. So not necessarily that somebody says, hey, I want to have 100 practices in the next five years. It's just I want to grow beyond at least that starting point of 1.5 billion and grow, whatever that ends up looking like. Correct. Funny enough, the the number that I hear most often in conferences and on interviews is I want to be $100 million. And I tell them, well, let's unpack that and (laughs) let's see what that would take infrastructure wise. You probably don't want to do that. So I would say the vast majority of our members are somewhere between one and 10 locations mm-hmm. and, and doing about a million, million and a half per location on average. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of the, the rule of thumb for us. That's our target avatar. And, and really, we're the only ones that do what we do. So we kind of get to pick and choose who we get to work with, which is great. Nowadays, we're mostly, I would say, 99% referral based, which is kind of where everyone wants to be, right? When you're running a business and you have phenomenal clients, you want other clients just like them. So. Yeah, very interesting. So, okay, so I have a question for you. I was talking to somebody recently, and I had wrongly assumed, having talked to some people, that um, that the five to six practice mark is when some major growing pains existed. And he said, actually, for me, it was going from one to two because I'm no longer there in person 
able to oversee things the same way. So it caused some um, managerial stretching and growing. What you talk to a lot of different organizations of all different sizes. What could you share? Um, is there like some formula or some sort of breakdown where it's like, yes, definitely one to two, definitely five to six, or is it just different for everybody? That's a great question, Chelsea. I think you have to make that leap from practice to business and then to organization. So that's okay. what our model really focuses in on. When you're a practice, you're still doing clinical. You're still doing the lion's share of the production yourself as the owner. And then you're having to wear the business hat at the same time, which is why you don't really scale when you're at the chair five to six days a week, right? Unless you have a full infrastructure with a CEO, a CFO, a COO, and then you can be chief clinical officer. But by that point in time, you're probably well beyond the one location mark. Mm -hmm. So going from, again, um, a practice mentality to a business mentality means that you have to be okay with recruiting and retaining associates because that's the engine that makes this work, right? That's going to be your number one challenge of all the key employees that you're going to need to hire. The associate driven model is the one that you really need to get down. Otherwise you're going to create a revolving door or otherwise you just got a really high paying job for the rest of your life, which kudos to you if that's what you want. But I would say the vast majority of people that I speak to on a daily basis don't want to be doing what their predecessors did, which is be clinical 30, 40 years of their career. They're trying to get really good clinically, but then mentor and bring on other associates to do the procedures that they don't necessarily want to be doing for the rest of their careers. Mm -hmm. And they want to make that transition to either chief clinical officer or CEO or an equivalent executive position so that they can work on the business rather than in it. The other thing you're going to have to get really good at is, and, and why that, um, dentist probably set up the two location mark is when he or she hit a wall is because not only do you have to have associates to do that, but you also have to worry about the bank financing drying up, right? Banks and the underwriting departments, um, they're not all created equally. If you've seen one bank, you've seen one bank. There's only a handful that really understand the multi-location model in dental. And so if you're not working with one of those, or even if you are, they're going to get a little bit squeamish when you get to your second or third location saying, hey, do you really have the infrastructure and the know-how on how to make this work? Because it's not as easy as just running one. And I think that's the thing that we see at DEO between myself and my partners all the time is people thinking that they've had a lot of success in their flagship, thinking, oh, I'll just go and do a scratch start for location number two. And they don't even have systems for a de novo. They don't realize you're having zero cash flow for the first couple of months, and there's no guarantee that even one patient starts to come in, you're, you're going to hit a home run because the systems you design for your flagship may or may not work. Oftentimes they may not work for your secondary location. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when you put those two components together, you know, the financial piece, and then you started out by talking about the um, talent acquisition piece included in those systems, what would your feedback be with the current human resource condition on um, on having a really good strategy for attracting and retaining your associate doctors? Great question. First of all, I can guarantee the job descriptions look like everybody else's. So if you look like everybody else, then it's going to be a race to the bottom on who's going to pay the highest salary. And chances are you can't compete with some of the larger groups that are in your area. So culturally, who are you? How many times mm -hmm. do you and I go to someone's website and there's everything that's patient-centric, but there's nothing about careers? Right. Start off by having a careers tab, potentially. If not, have a really strong social media presence. Have one of the young millennials that's really awesome at social media, probably not yourself, 
have one of them be your social media captain, right? Have them plaster everything about what you are, what your culture is, free days of dentistry, whatever you do for community outreach. That's really what's going to be attracting, I think, a lot of the younger generation of, of not just clinicians, but even non-clinical team members, right? But you have to stick out from the rest of the white noise. Also, have you actually gone and, and taken some time out of the office to actually create your target avatar? Who are you trying to recruit for every position? What is your ideal front office? What is your ideal hygienist? What is your high, ideal RDA and, and, and uh, associate doc, right? What type of additional procedures do you want to be providing? Like really think through. It's very difficult exercise for a lot of us is you kind of know what success looks like, but when you are tasked with well, what would a successful interaction look like within my business, it's easier said than done. I would even have someone secret shop your practice to give you a, a, a and someone non-dental to give you a true feedback loop of, hey, just from a customer service standpoint, this is what it felt like when I called in from the time I came to the front office to the time that they took me to the back and whether they reappointed me or not. And did I feel like a cog in a machine or did they actually take the time to get to know me? That's something that's pretty free and easy to do. It's just, it's just not a lot of owners do it because that's not what they're taught. Hmm. That is a really, you know, and I can see how that might seem like counterintuitive to spend time doing something that doesn't have an immediate financial benefit because it's going to take some more analysis, planning, adjusting those types of things. But in the long run, I can see how if you're not clear on who you're trying to attract, you're not going to retain them anyways, because once they get there, they're not clear on what you're trying to build and do. Um, exactly. That's and fantastic. Why I say, Chelsea, why I say map out your ideal customer journey is because you had better be able to articulate what that journey is to your prospective candidates. How many times have you and I got hired into an organization, dental or otherwise, and we don't even know what success looks like. You don't even know what you're supposed to be doing. You get trained, you get the corporate training, but then you still don't really know what success looks like and no one can model it for you. They just expect you to be able to be successful, but it's not modeled, it's not trained. And so the better you can get at articulating what that perfect experience is, then you'll have a much better time selling that value proposition to your to your candidates. Plus, you'll be able to weed someone out, right? If they don't align with the ideal vision and mission statement or the consumer outcome that you're trying to drive at the practice level, then they're not a fit for you. I don't care how much they can produce. They're just not a fit. So it, it, it helps in so many facets. It's not just you know a one-for-one. One. It, it's exponentially beneficial to actually be able to articulate and have your team articulate what the ideal experience is and then how their roles fit into that experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, um, you know, it's not that they're the wrong fit or that you're the wrong company for them. It's just that communication piece. And so by taking the time to analyze it and think it through, um, you can make sure that you're saying the thing and they're hearing the thing that and that it all matches because sometimes what I see is that somebody feels either unappreciated or like they're missing the mark or um, that maybe they've you know accepted a position at the wrong place and that's not the case at all. There's just a lack of clarity around like what you said, what success is. How do we win in this organization? Exactly. And, and how many clients do you work with that? Do they actually do retraining? They probably don't. You probably get new hire training once and then you're most likely shadowing someone. So you're only as good as the person that trained you. So a lot of mm -hmm. times it's not that people have a learning disability. We have a teaching disability. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
It's and you as the owner, in your mind, you 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 know what success and perfection looks like clinically, because you do microsurgeries every day. But then you get frustrated when that perfection doesn't translate to the, the practice level and the customer service side. I'd go so far as to say if you just took that same effort and focused on perfecting the customer service side of things, the clinical outcomes wouldn't actually matter as much because I, as a non-clinician, I, I don't live in that world of microsurgeries. I don't know or care, quite frankly, what the margins are. I just know if I had a good or bad customer service experience and if I had pain or not. That's kind of the two things that I look for in a clinical experience, right? And if you dropped the ball, did you apologize for it? Yes. Yes, absolutely. What you're saying is resonating so much because I think with physical pain, there's like the two parts. There's the physical aspect for sure. And then there's the part in my head that makes it so much worse. And so if I'm having a terrible customer service experience, um, I'm internalizing that. And for somehow it magnifies whatever physical pain I'm already in. So even if you get me out of that, it was a much more traumatic process than it ever needed to be. So I think this is so important what you're saying. It is. And, and there have been studies where when you as a business owner, if your business screws up and apologizes and acknowledges the screw up, you actually increase loyalty than if you never screwed up in the first place. Because mm. all we want to know is when someone makes a mess, do they clean it up? Are they accountable? Everyone can get along when things are going well. But eventually when things go sideways, do you and your team actually own up to it, clean it up? And are you accountable for it? You may lose the customer, but they will respect the fact that you um, did the right thing, I would say. And, and there's just a lack of that nowadays, right? It, it's looked at as weak for some reason when you screw up and then we're all supposed to be perfect and we're all supposed to bat a thousand, but that's just not possible, especially at scale. It's inevitable. We're just people at the end of the day. So mm. when you make a mess, do you clean it up? Do you, are you accountable? Is your team empowered to be accountable? And then what do you do above and beyond, right? You and I know that there are those organizations out there that whether it's at the practice level, I don't know what you can give away within, within the parameters, but there's something that you can do to, to, to win that client back or win that customer back. And I, I just don't know that that training is, 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 is done on a consistent basis or the empowerment for people to color outside of the lines from time to time to do the right thing for the customer. <laughs> Yeah, I like I like what you're saying. So how do you empower a team to do what you're saying? Well, you have to start by not only finding who your target avatar patients are, but who your target avatar employees are at every single level, right? Do you want to be that type of practice that tolerates C-level players so that you keep the margins fat? Because I've seen those types of owners, right? They're, they'll hire C-level players because they'd rather have more of their take-home. Mm. And I say, you know, you won't be able to scale with a team of C players because C players then default to D players. You're not going to have all these A players either because some of the really good ones you're just going to lose because they're going to move on to bigger and better things. But to have a career path is very important. But if you hire A and B players, I can guarantee you, you'll, you'll, you'll be much better off in the long run just by not having this constant attrition issue. Mm -hmm. that a lot of folks are having right now. Like you and I are seeing that right now, right? Everyone's complaining about staffing as an issue. You know, staffing is only an issue if you look like everyone else and you have no unique value proposition. Because I know, I know groups in the DEO that are crushing it on the talent acquisition side and they don't pay as much as some of their competitors. 
but they have such a phenomenal culture and people actually look forward to going in on Mondays versus they just can't wait for the week to be over and just get the heck out of the practice because yeah. it's just a toxic environment. And, and we know who those practices are. You see them not only in dentistry, but in business in general, right? There's nothing wrong with hiring C players, but if you're going to do that, be very intentional about what your model is. And it's probably going to be a high volume, high churn, and, and that's fine. There's, there's, a, there's a place and time for those types of practices. But if you're trying to be high-end boutique, fee-for-service, all on X, probably really want to be intentional about the hires you're making um, and, and, and what the career path opportunities are as well. Because it's, it's really an employee's world right now, right? They can, they, can, they can choose at will where they want to be at. They, a lot of them exited healthcare altogether. Mm-hmm. Just due, due to what we've been through over the last couple of years. I don't know if they're actually going to be coming back. I don't know if we're doing a good enough job to try to attract them to come back. Or we just think, well, I'll just find someone else to replace you. So again, it, it's being very intentional as a leader um, as far as who you're trying to attract, taking the time to really think this through intentionally, and then going and executing that. And then looking at your org chart and saying, do I have the, the right people in the right seats on the right bus? And, and being brave enough to make those changes if you need to, right? Because we all know what changes we need to make in the business. We're just sometimes too afraid to make those changes. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, I was having a discussion with a group recently, and um, I, I asked one question. I said, okay, if staffing was not the issue, like if you had a crystal ball and you knew for sure that was not the issue in this organization, then what would the answer be? Or what are the potential answers here? And it was a really interesting discussion that we were able to start having um, around communication, around alignment, around uh, uh, tolerance for conflict and failure. And um, I guess what I want to ask you next is, if I'm going to try and um, take that, you know, build that second or fourth or 14th location, how do I scale my culture in an effective way? That is a great question. I don't think you can do it through you. You have to do it through your leaders. So your job as a CEO is to build leaders, to level them up so that there is a career path and that they can then train the trainer, so to speak, and they can level up someone to backfill their old role. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a challenge. I can't tell you how many multi-location owners I talk to and I say, well, what does your leadership team look like? And it's usually just them, maybe another partner doc or two, And then they're really heavily relying on this poor office manager to be a a director of operations or a COO. And that's Mm -hmm. just not fair. That person didn't go to formalized training for that. Um, You need to give them some support. Your, Your job, right, is here's the way I look at it. Your job in any business is you're either working directly with the consumer or the patient in our case or you are working to support someone that does. It's really simple. And so those people that are patient facing, are you actually reaching out to them and asking them, well, what do they need? What do best in class look like? If you have, have you ever forced rank your team members on a matrix, right? (laughs) By clinician, by hygienist, by dental assistant, by front office, I guarantee you there's first and worst not mm-hmm. taking anything away from the person at the bottom, chances are it's a, it's a teaching issue, not a, not a, not a learning issue. Mm-hmm. And so what does that person look like that's best in class by each position in your practice? What do they do? They're doing something different than the rest of the pack. 
How about updating mm -hmm. your training manual to have them update the job description and what actually happens versus what's written in there and collecting cobwebs, right? Yeah. And so, and, and, and making sure that the quality controls and assurance is done on a regular cadence, at least annually, because a lot of what's currently on the job postings, like you're not even actually doing what the role is describing. And, and you and I both know that mm -hmm. once they go to the practice level, they're expected to be the Swiss army knife and do all things and be a magician. And that's just not realistic. That's setting someone up for failure. So what I would I say is, again, how do you make that culture scale? Well, I can tell you this, if you don't have the culture with the number of locations you currently have to think that you're gonna magically get something going by the time you acquire or de novo your next location, it, it's not realistic. Are you, even, are you even surveying your employees? Are you getting a net promoter score? How many of them, if they really could do it over again, would be working for you? Or are they just too comfortable? How many of them are referring people when you have an open position? That's a good indicator, right? How many referrals do you get? Are they even letting their family come to you? Right? <laughs> yeah. Like those are huge red flags to me. If they're not, there's a reason for that. So that being the case, I think, I mean, culture eats systems for breakfast, but you still need systems. And I think all of our systems are perfectly designed currently to get the results we're getting in our businesses today. Mm -hmm. So whatever, whatever, your roadblock is it's because your systems are perfectly designed to get you to the level that you're at and then you're plateauing you need to change something and sometimes that's personnel sometimes that's just outlook sometimes i mean what what is the goal at the beginning of the year just a generic 10 percent or 20 percent lift what are you incentivizing are the incentives even working anymore you know all of these things come into play but it's really hard to do when you're in the back at the chair doing clinical four to six days a week yeah. So that's where you have to figure out, do I want to bring on associates if for nothing else to reduce clinical by a day or two so I can work on the business? Because at a certain point, your body was never designed to be in the mouth for 30, 40 years on end and shaped like a pretzel. Mm -hmm. it just, it's going to take a toll on you. And, and, and you'd be lying to yourself if you think, well, I'm just a super doc and I'm never going to burn out. It's like everyone has a shelf life. You just don't know what that expiration date is. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, you can be the number one operator and you can work on your business in perpetuity, you know, or you can hand it off to someone else that can take over the reins one day. That's why a lot of our um, members create a DSO, not to have a hundred locations, but so that there's some succession planning if they want to hand it off to the next generation of family members or just people that have helped them scale. They want there to be some equity component for, for non-clinicians as well. And that's the other reason we structure a DSO. Mm -hmm. So, to answer your question, I mean, it, it's really basic, boring stuff, but it's taking the time to be intentional about, you know, who are you and who are you not? You can't be all things to all people. You know, if you're doing it right, you're going to upset a few people and you're going to weed out a few people intentionally because you're trying to deliver an experience that's unique from everyone else. Otherwise, you're just a commodity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a really healthy mindset that you're talking about, about pretend, you know, not taking on potential or, um, or even existing um, people who would like to be in your organization if they're not a good fit. And I even think reevaluating those who are in your organization, is this still a good fit? Would I rehire this person today? Um, and if not, what needs to change here? It could be a teaching issue. Like you said, it could be a wrong place in the practice. It could be just a wrong fit now. Maybe we've developed as an organization, but I think that there have been um, so many involvements in this industry 
that sometimes if you're in the back, you know, working four or five days a week, and even if you are aware of the things that you might want to get changed, there's just not the time or the bandwidth like you're describing. So what I love about bringing in expert groups like DEO is um, you're able to pull from other industries. What's working really well to make these multi-billion dollar organizations soar? And how do we implement that here in dental so that we can all have a healthier, happier, more successful experience? Exactly. And I think that's where myself and a lot of the partners, we don't want to see dental go the way that medical did, right? We're kind of in the consolidation era of dental where medical was in the 90s, Mm -hmm. but there's still choice. There's still choice for a brand new student to associate for a bit and then hang his or her own shingle. You don't really have that option in medical nowadays. And so we want there to be access to this information so that you can level up and you can create your own mini group, whatever that looks like. We're agnostic. Um, so again, it, but, it's, but it's, all about, it's all about who you work with and what you work on in life is all that matters. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're chasing it for the dollars, I've never seen anyone enter a business sole, for the sole purpose of making money and actually have had it succeed the way they thought it would. They might have moderate success, but not like the people that aim to solve a problem, got the right team of people together that all had the same conviction around that problem and decided that, hey, we're gonna say no to everything but these one or two things and we're gonna get laser focused on these solutions. And that's kind of what we did with DEL. You know, for well, sounds- five years, it, it's kind of remained steady Eddie because Mark Cooper was running it largely on his own. You just need a team around you. And then when Jake took it over, I mean, it, it went up six or seven X over the last five years because we got the right people together and worked on the right problems and just said no to all these other shiny objects that were a distraction at the end of the day. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, you're fine. So I guess what I was hearing you talk about some really big ideas, which means there must be some personal um, involvement and buy-in to this whole process. So what would be your personal reason? What are you doing this for? What do you want, Darren? That's a great question. You know, I've been luckier than I deserve, as Dave Ramsey would say. Um, <laughs> I think for me, it's just, again, the, the, the people, the partners that I have, right? When you take a look at Jake as a CEO, Emmett and Ken, Emmett arguably is probably the poster child for everything DSO in our industry. Yeah. And then Ken is the CFO to all CFOs. He even has a CFO study club called Dental Finance Forum where the CFOs get together secretly and share best practices. <laughs> and then you've got, you've got Josie, who's just a super rock star. Um, and then Eric Roman, who successfully built a group, exited, and now is moving on to bigger things. If, if those are your partners and you screw that up, like, I don't have a lot of sympathy for you. Like, if you're on the all-star team, there's not a lot you can do to, to make things go sideways because everyone's going to hold each other accountable. And then we do mm-hmm. the same thing with our leadership team. We've got about 30 to 35 team members spread throughout the U.S. virtually because we're a virtually-based business. Um, and they're all A-plus players. A lot of them come from the executive levels and take a huge pay cut so that they can be part of this winning team. And I think that's mm-hmm. when you have a, a really good culture. So if you ask me like, what's beyond, what's my tenure horizon? I personally don't have one because anyone that says they had one in 2020 got punched in the face when COVID. (laughs) So I really only look at a two-year horizon for myself personally, professionally, and financially. Um, But everything that I've been able to achieve is largely because of the the people I partnered with and the intentionality behind having the, 
the guts to say, hey, we're only going to focus on one or two things, no matter how opportunistic these other things are, and we're just going to stay the course and not deviate from it. And I think having that laser focus and having a team that sings from the same song sheet and rows in the same direction mm -hmm. is really all I care about. If I was in another industry, the secret to success is the same thing. Um, you find the best of the best at, the, at, at whatever they're doing. If we were in vet, there are probably some vets that have multi-locations. There are probably some conferences that vets go to. And then not all conferences are created equally. There are probably the cream of the cop conferences that these top producers go to. I would go to those. And I would just pick their brain and figure out what are the problems they're having. Is there a solution in the industry? Are there any vendors that are providing solutions to these problems? No. Okay, that's what I would go focusing on. And I would be very intentional about building the right team of thought leaders around me and then giving them an equity stake in whatever the enterprise was, whether it's a service offering or a product offering, whatever it is, it's much better to have a small piece of a much bigger pie than 100% of a tiny pie. So I think that's, at the end of the day, again, who you work with and what you work on is all that matters. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I know some of your partners better than others, but I have a lot of respect for your entire team. Um, absolutely, I agree. It's an all-star team. So, you know, I when you're talking about these things and keeping your eye on the ball and staying laser focused, um, that's not an easy task. And anybody who's listening to this and is interested in scaling their business, um, that's not going to be an easy task. There are going to be tons of distractions and shiny objects, like you say. So what does it look like? How do you personally set for each day so that you can do the things that um, are going to be most aligned with your ultimate goals? Great question. Chelsea, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you block schedule your calendar. I do. <laughs> okay, so everyone that I know that's successful does. And you put your big rocks or whatever those top priorities for the week are first, and you don't compromise. You mm -hmm. can let a lot of other things slide, but those number one, two, and three priorities have to get done somehow. Come hell or high water, you're going to figure out a way to get them done, mm -hmm. right? And then by 9 a.m. in the morning, your schedule is going to go to crap, just like mine does. But the reality, the reality is... is those big rocks are non, you don't compromise, right? They're non-negotiable. You have to get them done. Mm -hmm. So for all of you um, out there that are wondering like, well, how do I do it? How do I get started? There's a lot of great books out there on, on how to schedule correctly. Um, but block scheduling, you can just Google it, go to YouTube. There's a very intentional way that you structure your calendar. For me, one of the big rocks is working out Monday, Monday through Wednesday. Like I am in the gym first thing in the morning. And then it totally sets the rest of the day up for success, regardless of how bad the day is. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously I will prioritize and deprioritize things as they come up, right? Like something like this podcast. Okay, guess what team? I've got this hour with Chelsea and then the first 15 minutes ahead of it and the last 15 minutes behind it are blocked off. Don't bug me for anything. I can always come and find you later or you can come and slack me when I'm off the podcast. So things like that, they matter. And I think... And every single person that I've talked to that's successful at what they do does some form of block scheduling in addition to they're all pretty regimented when it comes to their, their personal health. I'm not saying like they're all vegan or like they're super, super conscious about what they eat. I pop a burger in my mouth every now and then, but they're pretty rigorous about like, hey, I've got to exercise. I've got to get a good night's sleep. I know when I'm not feeling 100%. I will reschedule things accordingly if need be. Um, mm -hmm. but, but again, block, block scheduling is first and foremost in my mind. Like I just don't know if you took that away from me. 
how I can function pro properly. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I love that your example was your workouts because um, some people might look at that and be like, okay, I'm going to block schedule my professional hours, which yes, that is important too. Um, but I find that when I don't have my own personal needs met and I haven't prioritized those correctly, there's this running in the background of my mind. I'm always wondering, hoping, thinking about when am I going to get that thing done that I was anticipating or really looking forward to? And if it's not in place, I don't have the same sustainable energy to do all the other things because it feels like I'm now a slave to you know, the externals rather than what I personally would like to do and feel is best. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's just like when you get on a flight, the flight attendant tells you to put your oxygen mask on before yes. the person to the left or right of you. You got to. You got to put your oxygen mask on first is what I tell everybody. Because you're useless if you don't have your health or you're not in the right state of mind to deal with these problems that your inbox is going to be full long after you're dead. So like getting it to zero is a joke, right? If you look at, for those of you that are trying to get in touch with dentists, next time you're at a conference, ask them to pull out their iPhone or their Android and, and show you how many unread emails there are. I've seen it go up to the six figures. Mm. And it's just... <laughs> it's just too much, right? Even if they yeah. create a separate account. So there's overload and overwhelm. So I understand what a day in the life is like, even though I'm not a clinician, I, I interview them all day long. Mm -hmm. I, I know how stressful that can be and, and not feeling like we have any relief, which is why it's even more important for them to, to make time for it. And by the way, when, when someone says they don't have time, it's just not a priority. Right. right? For everything worthwhile in life, the timing always sucks. Yes. Yes. And, and hopefully we all get to the point where we like recognize, okay, then I guess that's not a priority for me and release yourself of that obligation because <laughs> it's not happening and it feels a whole lot better not worrying about it anymore. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about um, what DEO is, but, um, and I know that there's the event coming up. Mm -hmm. So, and you said that that's open to anybody. Is that right? It's open to the public. And I mean, it's June 9th through the 11th at the Phoenician in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's going to be phenomenal. It's, it's kind of the Super Bowl event for everything dental related. So whether mm -hmm. you're, and you don't have to be a DSO, you don't have to have a hundred locations. There's a lot of solo location owners coming to that. There's even fourth year dental students okay. that are trying to get a head start on this. So there's Fantastic. all walks of life there. Yeah. Um, it is a phenomenal event with breakout tracks. It's really owners on stage telling other owners how they did it. And so anytime you can get into a room where someone's a little bit ahead of you or a little bit advanced and they're telling you how to do it, like I'm always trying to figure out a way to get myself into those types of rooms. So whether you attend live or virtual, um, it's the same price and you'll get a copy of the recording either way. So even if you have a prior commitment or engagement, I mean, just register for it because you'll get a copy of the recording in about a week after the event and we edit down for content and then we send it your way. But the reality is this is information that you just can't get anywhere else. This is not like a didactic clinical CE course that is happening every single month. This is something that happens once a year. And then for those that are interested in DEO membership, we discussed that there. You can also always go to the DEODentalGroup.com website to, to learn more about that event and, and about us. But the reality is like, even if we're not the right group, we're going to try to find the right fit for you. Like if you schedule 30 minutes with me, I think it's one of the options. You can schedule a call with me. Um, I'm going to advocate for you. I'm not going to sell you on anything. That's just not my style to begin with. It's really just figuring out, okay, what are your needs? What are you struggling with? Let me get you pointed in the right direction. Sometimes that's with us. Sometimes it's someone else that can help in a, in a better capacity based on what your needs are. So that's, that's really what it's all about is us paying it forward. Okay. So the, the, 
public event, the all led by the All Star team. But let's say it was a good fit. What what does it look like to be a member of DEO? What does that get me? Yeah, it's great. So it's um not a huge time commitment. It's typically ninety percent of what you're learning is done virtually with technology nowadays. You have that benefit. So 90% of the time, you're either hopping on a coaching call over the phone or a Zoom call in a community environment that we facilitate. It's not like you're left to your own devices and good luck getting your questions asked and answered. It's DEOs holding your hand every step of the way. Okay. But we have a proprietary training methodology that we're going to walk you through that you can then level up your leadership team by giving them access to it as well. And then 10% of the time, so that's 90% of the time, one hour a week outside of clinical then 10% of the time you're coming to a live event like the one at the summit. And then we do private events for members only behind the scenes as well at different cities. So that's really what it comes down to is, hey, if you've got one hour and I mean, from, from a price point standpoint, it's roughly the, the price of a couple of crowns. So just to give you some, some idea of, of what membership looks like and it's month to month, we don't do contracts. So if, if it's not a fit for you or you're not a fit for us, we just part ways as friends and it doesn't get awkward where you feel like you're locked in for one to two years. So that being the case, I mean, again, we're more concerned with curating the right group, which is why I say no more than yes. But at the very least, you're going to get a ton of benefit by spending a couple of minutes with me because I'm, I'm probably going to give you some bonus content that we don't release to the public that's yours to keep forever. So that's kind of what we're known for is we just openly share all of this information and intel that we've curated, there's no sense in reinventing the wheel. So that, that's normally what we offer is if you can't come to one of the summits, you can normally schedule like a quick 30 minute call with me. I'll try to, to the best of my ability, point you in the right direction. If the EO is a fit, we'll talk about next steps and usually schedule another call. But that primary call is all about you and, and getting your questions asked and answered because the reality is you and your team, if you had the answers, you probably would have scaled by now or you wouldn't have as stress as you do. So yeah. the reality is not, none of us is smart enough to know everything. So it's always beneficial. Like when you're talking to me, you're basically talking to the $2.8 billion worth of groups. Because I mean, I'm in touch with all of them all the time. I know what's working. I know what's not. So I can pretty much all but guarantee that I know what a day in, in, in your life is like and, and what stresses you're going through because I hear them all the time. Yeah. So valuable. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Darren. So go to the website, schedule a call, um, June 7th to the 9th in Scottsdale. Anything else that I'm forgetting? Um, well, it's actually June 9th through the 11th in Scottsdale. Sorry, 9th to the 11th. No, no, it's fine. I mean, I think, I think for your um, audience, depending on when this launches or airs, it must, I think you said it might be at the very last week in May. Mm -hmm. I'll send them a promo code. So I'll just say it's SBC. Like, so S as in Sam, B as in boy, C as in Charlie. Okay. 150, 150. So that'll give them a promo code on top of the registration rate. So all of you and your audience can, can see us either live or virtually using that promo code. Um, I know that it, it's probably going to be a sold out event, especially as we used to do two and now we're consolidating down to one mega event. Okay. And so we just, there's such a huge demand for the business side of dentistry, whether you're one location or you're aspiring to be a larger DSO, like learning from others that have already done it is probably the smartest way to navigate, navigate this obstacle course rather than going it alone. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the last one you guys did, I, I hopped online like maybe a month in advance and there was a, there was a ticker and I was like, oh yeah, no problem. Got lots of time. And then all of a sudden the next time I logged on, it, it was like <laughs> jumps across the screen. And so, yeah. um, that's definitely good insight for as far as it potentially being sold out. Uh, we'll push this out as soon as possible. And I'll put 
SBC 150 in the show notes as well for anybody listening. Perfect. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Darren. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This was a lot of fun and good conversation for sure. Well, Chelsea, I appreciated it anytime. And thank you so much for being part of the DEO and, and speaking to our group as well. They loved, they loved hearing you. Absolutely. Anytime. I appreciate you joining me for today's episode. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit dentallife.coach for access to additional coaching tools, as well as more episodes to help you create the dental life you truly desire.